Good morning. I want to introduce you to this little satellite called Pioneer 10. In 1972, this little satellite, this space probe, was designed and built by NASA to go where literally no probe had ever gone before. The probe was designed to last for three years and to make it all the way to Jupiter. Now, I mentioned that this probe had gone where no probe had ever gone before. Up until this point, we had never sent a probe beyond Mars. And if it's been a few years since you guys put together that little diorama with those space balls, maybe your parents painted those and got the A on your behalf like my dad did for me. This is our solar system. So again, we have Mercury, Venus, Earth, third rock from the sun, Mars, and then Jupiter. Um, and so it was a pretty bold, you know, idea to send this probe where we had never sent a probe before. Additionally, there were some pretty serious obstacles in the probe's way. There was the massive magnetic field around Jupiter. There was its atmosphere that had to pass through. There's actually an asteroid belt that lies here in between Mars and Jupiter that it would have to pass through. And so they launched it in 1972, not really knowing how it would do. And something amazing happened. In 1972, they launched the probe and made it all the way through all those obstacles to Jupiter. And when it got to Jupiter, Jupiter's gravitational pull slingshotted Pioneer 10, not only past Jupiter, but out throughout the end of our solar system. It was designed to last for three years, make it to Jupiter, but it ended up lasting for 31 years. And it made it all the way beyond Pluto, over 6 billion miles. And maybe what I think is most interesting about this probe is how it was powered. A reporter at the time, a man named Leon Jaroff, wrote an article about Pioneer 10. And here's what he said in that article. He said, perhaps most remarkable, Pioneer 10's signals emanate from an 8-watt transmitter, which radiates about as much power as a bedroom nightlight. I brought one of these. Maybe you have one of these in your house if you have kids, or maybe you've had one at one time. The same power that it takes to power this sent pictures and data over 6 billion miles from Pioneer 10 back to Earth. And I'm not just a NASA junkie to tell you NASA stories this morning. I'm here to ask you a question. How many of you feel a little bit like Pioneer 10? When you think about what God has called you to do, when you think about what you read in Scripture, many times I feel like Pioneer 10. God, you want me to do what? You want me to go where? What obstacles am I going to have to overcome? What, what things stand in my way and give me fear? And what is going to power all of that? I think sometimes the unspoken truth is that many of us read scripture and we feel completely overwhelmed. We feel completely intimidated in the same way that that probe, if it had feelings, might have been intimidated by the calling in front of it. This summer, we've been walking our way through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and looking at these descriptors, these virtues, these qualities. And today, we're going to talk about one that I think many of us read but don't experience or believe for ourselves. It's that word, faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I am the resident expert on unfaithfulness. 
I have memories of all of those moments in my past where I was not faithful, but I was unfaithful. Where I didn't follow through on my word. When I didn't live up to even my own standards or other standards or even God's standards. And so this morning, I want you to think about this question. Do you ever feel like faithfulness is beyond you? Do you ever feel like faithfulness is something that that other people may experience? You may read about in scripture, but it's certainly never going to be the descriptor that others use when they think about you. See, I think as we read through this list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, each of us have those that we kind of naturally gravitate to. We're like, yeah, I'm halfway decent at that one. You know, on my best day, I'm pretty good at that one. But we also have those fruit that we think about it and go, man, nobody is ever going to use that word to describe me. And I think for many of us, that word that we don't use to describe ourselves and that we think other people don't use to describe us is the word faithful. Because if you get close enough to us, all of us, guess what? We're all unfaithful. We all stumble. We all fall. We all fail. And if that's you this morning that I'm describing, I just have a couple questions I want to ask you as we get started. And here's the first one. What if you allowed the Spirit to do, what if you allowed the Spirit to do what you could not do on your own? This is essentially, we've been talking about this whole series, is that if you treat these fruit of the Spirit like things you're going to do in your own power and strength, you will fail. But what if you started allowing the Spirit to do in you and for you and through you what you couldn't do on your own? Also, What if your focus was less on your faithfulness or your unfaithfulness to God and more on God's faithfulness to you? Friend, if you focus on your faithfulness, you're going to stumble and fall. Because as the proverb says, pride goes before the fall. And if you focus on your unfaithfulness, how you don't feel like you're worthy, you feel like you're a screw-up, you feel like you don't belong, then you will never get a picture of God's faithfulness to you and what he could do through you, and you'll stay in a place of depression and condemnation and shame. But here's the final question. What if faithfulness was more about trusting God than trusting yourself? I know we live in a culture that just shouts, trust yourself, trust yourself, trust yourself. And I'm not saying that you should completely disregard trusting yourself. But I think us becoming faithful has far more to do with us trusting God than it does us trusting ourselves. So if you have that sermon sheet I mentioned a few minutes ago, here's the big idea. You can fill in the blanks. We will never be faithful apart from discovering and trusting that God is believable. We will never be faithful. The word faithful will never be used to describe us apart from us discovering and trusting that our God is believable. Now in Galatians 5, where we read the fruit of the Spirit, the Greek word that's used that we translate as faithfulness is the word pistis. And it means firm persuasion, conviction, belief in the truth, veracity, reality, or faithfulness. According to this definition, this is not about us being morally perfect, which is good, because otherwise none of us would ever qualify. 
It is about our persuasion and conviction and belief in the truth of God and his faithfulness. And I know of no better or more well-known description of faith in the Bible than Hebrews 11. So that's where we're going to start today. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're new to the Bible, that's great. We've all been new to the Bible once. Hebrews is near the back of the Bible. It's after the book of Philemon, and it's before the book of James. And it's a book that's written to Jews who had become followers of Jesus. Unlike most other books in the Bible, we really don't know who wrote Hebrews. But we do know that, that many sections in Hebrews are among the most beloved sections of Scripture for people who are followers of Jesus. And in Hebrews 11, the, the passage is all about faith, both as a concept and as a picture of people who lived faith. So I want to invite you to, as, to stand this morning as we read this first section of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. Catherine's going to advance the slide so you can follow along. The writer says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it our ancestors won God's approval. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Then go down to verse 6. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus, for my friends this morning who are here, who feel far, far from faithful, I pray that you would capture their hearts this morning by a vision of your faithfulness to them and what you can do through them when they give themselves totally and completely to you. In your name we pray this morning, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. This morning, as we unpack this and some other texts, I want to share with you four insights about faithfulness. And here's the first one if you're taking notes. Faithfulness begins by trusting God's character. So if you're like, Scott, I am extremely unfaithful as a person, the worst place for you to start is trying to increase your faith in yourself. The place that you start is beginning by trusting in God's character. And if you were to go home today, and if you haven't read Hebrews 11, I'd encourage you to go home today and read it. What you would read is the lives of men and women across what we would call countries and centuries who experienced the faithfulness of God even amidst their own unfaithfulness. And and when it comes to faithfulness, you really can, can have your faith in God be based on one of two different things. And all of us in this room, I believe, are basing our faith in God, if you are a believer, in one of two things. You can either build your faith on what God does, or you can build your faith on who God is. What God does who God is. And the, the difference or the picture of what these look like differently can be summed up in this picture, a roller coaster. Anybody here like riding roller coasters? Okay. Yeah. Some of you are, you know, a little bit of adrenaline junkies. You like it. Others of you who had your hand like in your pocket, you're like, you could not get me on one of those if you paid me a million dollars, Scott. See, roller coasters are fun for like a minute, two minutes, three minutes. But I doubt even those of you who raised your hands that you love to ride roller coasters would like to live on one. 
because three minutes is different than three hours, three weeks, or three years. When you build your faith on what God does, you are choosing to live life on a roller coaster. Because when God is doing things that you think are blessing you according to your plan, they make sense. You're up here. You're doing great. But when God begins to do stuff in your life, like he does in my life, that doesn't make sense to you, that don't fit your plan, that don't meet your expectations, that don't make sense to you in light of your understanding, you find yourself bewildered, frustrated, maybe even angry. It's one thing to ride a flip or a corkscrew on a roller coaster. It's another thing to live one. And many of us, we struggle with being faithful because we have based our faith on what God does. And when what he's doing is what we think he should do, we're great. But when he's either doing things or allowing things that make no sense to us, especially things that are hard, difficult, painful, we lose all sense of who he is. In Hebrews 11, the writer says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. And if you build your faith on what God does, you are building your faith on what you can see. And throughout scripture, we are reminded that God's ways are not our ways. His invisible thoughts are not our thoughts. And so friends, I would just encourage you that if you're going to build your faith on God's character, make sure it's based upon who he is, not merely what he does. Because if you build your faith on what he does, what will happen over time is you will begin to build what I call a transaction with God where the answer to this question becomes clear. Do you want what God does for you? Or do you want who he is to you? Do you want God for what he does for you? Or do you want God for who he is to you? If you're building your faith on what he does, you're wanting him for what he can give you. And let's be honest, we all have things we're praying for today, things that we want God to give us. That's okay. It's okay to have prayers and hungers and desires, but when that's the primary basis of your relationship with God, where you want him for what he does for you, well, how would you feel if somebody in your life wanted you for what you did for them? You'd feel used. You'd feel like you didn't matter. There's a big difference between being in a relationship with somebody who is a friend and somebody who has an agenda. And many times we're the people with the agenda with God. We want him for what he does for us. We often want a transaction from God while God wants transformation in us. Transaction. We, we want to go to the spiritual ATM of God, put in our card, enter our pin, pick the thing we want God to do, and then he delivers it instantly. God is not an ATM. We don't transact with him. He wants to transform us. And he transforms us as we build our faith, not on our faithfulness or what we've seen him do, but on his character. I love how Beth Moore describes this. She says, faithfulness is resting in his certainty, 
being persuaded by his honesty, trusting in his reality, being won over by his veracity, being sure that he's sure and believing that he's worth believing. Remember, that's the big idea. We'll never be faithful apart, apart from discovering and trusting that God is believable. And faithfulness begins by trusting in his character. But it doesn't stop there. Number two, faithfulness is a shield against spiritual attack. Faithfulness is a shield for us against spiritual attack. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, who also wrote the book of Galatians, he talks about spiritual armor. This, this suit of armor that we put on to do battle. And in Ephesians 6.16, he describes faith this way. He says, In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So knowing his audience, who were Roman citizens or people living in the Roman Empire, he borrows the image of a Roman shield. Now, I've told you before that I am not a handy person. I don't build things, but I have friends who are handy. And so this week I sent out a text to my good friend, Josh McClintock, and I said, Josh, I need a shield. I didn't ask him to build it. I just said, I need a shield. And boy, did he come through. Abby, will you bring me my shield this morning? Okay. Thank you, Abby. Please be clapping for Abby and Josh and not for me. Josh was good, and he asked me what color shoes I was wearing today, and so these are pretty close. So, Josh, you went above and beyond, brother, so. So, the Roman army would often um, seek to destroy or break down heavily fortified cities. And so, most Roman soldiers would carry a shield that was approximately four feet tall and two and a half feet wide, which I think this one is roughly that. And as they were being attacked, often the uh, opposing army would shoot arrows at them, sometimes flaming arrows. And so Roman shields were made out of linen and leather coverings, and, and they were designed not only to stop the arrows, but the coating on the shield was designed to extinguish the flaming arrows. And so when a group of soldiers was advancing against a city, they would get together like this with shields out front and shields overhead to prevent those flaming arrows from reaching them or killing them. This is why the Apostle Paul says, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And if they stayed in uniform position and alignment, these soldiers would be protected not only from arrows, but from flaming arrows too. But a shield is only as helpful or as strong as the person holding it up. This is where you and I come in. Paul says to us that we have a shield of faith. That isn't our faith in ourselves, it's our faith in the faithfulness of God. But many times, not only is our enemy shooting flaming arrows at us, our enemy is often right beside us, whispering, tempting, lying to us, hoping that we will drop the shield down. 
And I don't know about you, but when I'm this is what I hear. Scott, is God really for you? And he allowed that thing to happen. How could he be for you if that happened? Does God really love you? I mean, after all, it doesn't seem very loving, that thing that he allowed to come in your life. I mean, why would God allow that? Why would a good God allow that, Scott? How can you trust God who allowed that? Scott, I know that you're thinking about compromising here. And I know you know this is wrong, but it's okay. Just this one time, God will understand. And slowly, question by question by question, lie by lie by lie, doubt by doubt by doubt, the arrows don't stop coming. God doesn't change, but we begin to lower our shield. And then our enemy is one. We have a shield of faith that will extinguish the flaming arrows, but we have an enemy who wants to lie to us, and he knows the only way he can defeat us is if we lower our shield. Friends, we will never be faithful apart from discovering and trusting that God is believable. And when our enemy can begin to get us doubting that he's believable, stopping or ceasing or dropping our trust in him, those are the moments that we find ourselves most vulnerable. Third insight. Faithfulness involves both abandoning sin and avoiding distractions. We often think that being faithful is just about, well, don't sin, but it's more than that. At the end of that section on faith in the very next chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews 12 begins this way. The writer says, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's the people he described in Hebrews 11, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I love the pioneer word in light of pioneer 10. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In the day of the writer of Hebrews, this was the day of the Greek and the Roman Olympiad. And it was a big deal to run them. They didn't have fancy, you know, Nike gold shoes like Usain Bolt or Michael Johnson. But they would run these incredibly long races and they would be given crowns and they would become heroes in that culture and in that day. And the writer of Hebrews says, like a runner running an Olympic race, faithfulness is a long race. Faithfulness is not a hundred meter dash. It isn't the 110 hurdles. It isn't even a, a 400 meter lap. It's a marathon, which was invented by the Greeks, if you know the story of marathon and how that name came from. And friends, faithfulness is a long race. It's a lifelong race. And that's why it's so difficult. Most of us could do it if it was a sprint. But it's not something we can do in our own power and strength. And what we see in Scripture is that we cannot make ourselves faithful. 
You and I, in our own willpower and strength, cannot will ourselves into faithfulness. But it doesn't mean that we're passive in this building of faithfulness because we can identify the entanglements and the obstacles in between you and I and faithfulness. So the image I want you to think of is that you're running a race and between you and the the finish line, that may be something you're dealing with right now. It may be your death. You can't make yourself faithful in that race, but in that race, there are things that are entangling you, slowing you down, and there are things that are obstacles in your way. And what you can do is you can identify those, and you can work on beginning to remove those. Here's the image I want you to think about. Think back to when you were in elementary school and you had a field day. One of my favorite events on field day was the sack run. Remember the sack run? You got in that potato sack. Everybody was in the sack. You all started jumping and trying to win. It was kind of funny because people were falling and falling on their face. Some of you have childhood trauma over this. I'm sorry for reintroducing you to that. But you're running the race. And it's cute when you're watching kids do that, or maybe it was fun when you were a kid doing that. But here's the thing. The entanglements that you are dealing with right now, the sins that are slowing you down, are like a sack race. And guess what? You're the only one who's trying to run in the sack. You don't have to run a sack race. You can get rid of that. You can run unhindered. But many of us choose and allow things in our lives that entangle us and slow us down in the race. We, we have obstacles in front of us that we know are going to prevent us from being faithful and we don't deal with them and remove them. We can't make ourselves be faithful, but God is not going to passively take you to faithfulness. There are going to be things you're going to have to do and that includes abandoning sin and avoiding entanglements. And so my question for you is this, what is slowing you down? On the road to faithfulness, what is slowing you down? And do you have it in your own power and strength to get out of that sack or remove that obstacle? Jesus will give you the power to be faithful, but he will not be faithful for you. You're going to have to choose. You know what? I'm not going to do that. You know what? I am going to say no. No, I'm going to leave behind that group of friends that are leading me astray. And so being faithful involves both abandoning sin and avoiding entanglements. And then finally, number four, faithfulness often looks ordinary and boring. I try to always tell you the truth when we gather together as a church, and I'm just telling you the truth today that one of the reasons why I think many people don't step into faithfulness is because it seems and feels way too boring. But yet, what does the Apostle Paul say about our life and our work in Colossians 3? He says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. So on the surface, there are lots of things that we do that seem ordinary and boring. But when we take a different point of view, the Colossians 3.23 point of view, everything we do, whatever we do, we can do it as for Jesus. 
which changes it from ordinary to extraordinary, from boring to significant. Now, I know this is hard in our world because we have been formed and discipled into the values of this world, which if it's ordinary or boring, we run the other way. It isn't just kids who get bored and don't do things they don't like. There's plenty of adults who do the same. But in our world, if you hear words like upgrade and bigger, those are the things you want because they're not ordinary. They're the upgrade over the ordinary. They're they're not boring. They're bigger. And yet what we see in Scripture is the life that we want doesn't come through the values of this world. It comes through faithfulness. Now, he wasn't the person that I take quotes and cues from in many areas. But Frederick Nietzsche was right when he said this. He said, the essential thing in heaven and on earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. That thereby results and has always resulted in the wrong long run something which has made life worth living. You and I want the same thing. We want to live a life that's worth living. We want our life to matter. We want it to count. When we get up in the morning, we want to say, hey, there's a reason for me to get up. And we go to bed, there's a reason for me to get up tomorrow. What makes a life worth living? Well, it is the things that come through a long obedience in the same direction. You go, Scott, that's ordinary and boring. Yeah. That's the path to everything that makes life worth living. We just live in a culture that has bought into the lie that you can have a life worth living from a short burst in a variety of directions. And a short burst in a variety of directions will not lead you to a life worth living. Because life often happens in the midst of us living along obedience in the same direction. It happens in the middle of ordinary and seemingly boring and insignificant moments. One of the things I love about living in Prescott is occasionally we'll have snow days. Occasionally we'll have days where you can't go to church because the snow snows you in depending on where you live. And in the 1850s, this kind of day happened in rural England. A man named John Eglin woke up and his town of Colchester, England was buried in snow. And he had to decide what you have to decide. Am I going to stay at home or am I going to go to church? Now, what's unique about John Eglin is that he lived six miles from the church and he didn't have a horse. He didn't have a Tesla either. So it was going to have to be these, these two legs. And so John was a deacon in his church. He was a volunteer, a servant. He said, I'm going to go to church. And so John got up in 1850 and he walked six miles to his church. It was a very small gathering that day at the church. Everyone decided to go home. But this was not the days where you could stream church from home. And so those who were there were going to do a service. There was only 13 of them and there was no pastor. He had gotten snowed in too. So John was looked to by everyone in the room as the most responsible or senior person. And so John got the sermon that day. 
John had never preached a sermon before. And from what record we have of this day, it wasn't a good one. It was short though. It was three minutes. It's hard to have a bad three-minute sermon. Sadly, you've gotten much more than three minutes today. I apologize. But John got up and he gave a short three-minute sermon that had lots of wandering rabbit trails. But at a certain point, he looked at the one visitor in the 13 people who were there in the room. It was a 13-year-old young man. And to that 13-year-old young man, he said, young man, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look, look, look to Jesus. And that young man felt God show up right here in his heart. And on that day, that young man who was a visitor in that church, that 13-year-old boy, surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. That young man's name? Charles Spurgeon. Maybe the greatest preacher of the 1800s. Now, John Eglin didn't know that Charles Spurgeon was sitting in the seats. He just saw some 13-year-old kid he'd never seen before. He didn't know that he was going to be Charles Spurgeon because he was 13. And he didn't know history like we do. But in the midst of that ordinary, boring morning, John got up, he went to church, and he did something that he felt completely unprepared and unexpected to do. And God worked through John Eglin's moment. And up until now, I had no idea who John Eglin was. I knew who Charles Spurgeon was, but I know John Eglin. Would there have been a Charles Spurgeon if there was not the ordinary obedience of John Eglin? Here's the question I want to ask you. What might God do through your ordinary faithfulness in the boring moments beginning today. You say, Scott, I'm not faithful. I know I'm not either. But we have a faithful God. And as we begin to take our steps of ordinary obedience in ordinary boring moments, and we trust not in our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness, but we trust in his he can bring faithfulness to life through us. Because remember, we will never be faithful apart from discovering and trusting that he is believable. And he has said that the fruit of his spirit in us includes faithfulness. So I want to give you some practices today. They don't involve going to church through snow. Hopefully none of you will have a three-minute sermon next Sunday. But we've been talking about practices in this series because we were reminding ourselves each week that the fruit of the Spirit are not objectives we achieve in our own power and strength. They're outcomes we experience as we trust in and depend on God. But there are practices that we do that enable us to cooperate with God. And so I've got three for you this morning. Here's the first one. Today, I want you to go home and write down Psalm 145.13 on an index card or a post-it note, or the back of a bill from APS, whatever you have laying around. Put it up on your mirror as a daily reminder to renew your trust, not in yourself, but in God. Psalm 145.13 says this, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. 
You're going to have a day this week where it doesn't feel like or seem to your naked eye that God is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his actions. But you're not renewing your trust in what God does. You're renewing your trust in who God is. And so I invite you to put that reminder up. Number two, I want you to make a stop doing list. Now, a lot of us are very familiar with to-do lists. I love a good to-do list. I will begin a to-do list with three things I have already done and then check them off to feel like I'm making progress already. (laughs) It's the kind of person that I am. Don't judge. Some of you do the same thing. This is the opposite of a to-do list. It's a stop doing list. And what goes on your stop doing list? Two things. The answer to two questions. What actions do I need to abandon And what distractions do I need to avoid? What are the actions that I'm doing that are getting in the way of faithfulness that I need to abandon? And what are the distractions that I've gotten myself caught up in that I need to avoid? Now, I will just tell you that we are unique in the distractions that tempt us. I'm not tempted to watch news every night when I go home. But I am tempted to be on my phone where my kids don't see my face, they see the back of my phone. We're really good at judging other people who have different distractions from us. This is not making a list of the distractions your wife needs to avoid or your kids need to avoid. It's the distractions you need to avoid. So you make a stop doing list and then you ask yourself this question. What will replace the items on this list? Because if you remove an action or you remove a distraction, your enemy is going to want to put a new one in there. So it isn't just a stop doing list. It's a stop doing list that leads to a start doing list. What's going to go in the place of those things? And then number three, I want you to have an honest conversation with a trusted friend this week about the state of your shield. Your shield. This thing right here. Because you all have one. And with somebody you trust, who's also a follower of Jesus, I want you to talk to them about your shield. And here's the two questions I want you to ask. What flaming arrows are coming your way? And why are you lowering your shield? What happened to you that caused you to lower your shield? What happened to you that nobody knows about? What, what lie did you start believing that nobody knows about? It's not that you're strong enough to defeat the flaming arrows. It's his faithfulness and his strength that defeats them. But many of us, if we get honest with somebody, we've started lowering our shield. So why are you lowering your shield? Have that conversation with somebody today and help have them help you, point you back to him and his faithfulness to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the reminder that this is not a gathering of the most faithful people in the world. If that was the case, none of us would have gotten an invitation. This is a gathering of the broken and the unfaithful, those who stumbled and those who've fallen, 
who have been picked up by you and your grace and your mercy and been made to stand by your faithfulness to us. So today we give you glory and honor and praise for your faithfulness. It is your faithfulness, Lord, that is our firm foundation. And it is your faithfulness to us that is the source of our trust and our hope. So today I pray for my friends in this room and those who are watching online who have started lowering their shield because they've had doubts or questions. They've gotten hurt by people or they've misunderstood what you've done. They've believed the lies and the temptation of our enemy and they're vulnerable now. I pray that you would work through the people around them to help them lift their shield back up and trust in you. I pray for those who are caught up in entanglements, sin, addictions, patterns that are keeping them from faithfulness. And I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd give them the the courage to be honest with at least one person today and find the freedom that comes when we confess our sins one to another that we may be healed. And I pray that with the obstacles that are in front of us, that we would see them coming and through your grace be able to avoid them. We thank you that we don't have to trust in our faithfulness, Jesus. We merely have to stand in and trust in yours. And for that, we give you glory and honor and praise today. In your name, amen.